Buongiorno amici, welcome to episode 4 of 3 Security Buddies. I'm your host Matisse Brudy and I'm joined by Paul. Howdy Paul, what's going on? Oh, not a lot, it's a little bit of a rainy weekend so I'm looking forward to chatting. Awesome, and the almighty Eurovision Rover Clark. Cheers mate. Cheers mate. Yeah, I'm looking forward to another fun episode and recovering from the the fantastic showing of Britain in Eurovision yesterday. Yeah, I, I, I got quickly educated into a good old dress up rock and roll that I have forgotten even existed. Um, anyways, we, we, it looks like we have an interesting week. You know, I, I did said last week that Code Co was here to stay and apparently Mercari actually came out with another interesting incident. They actually provided a lot of details into the amount of users that were affected in the incident, etc. And I, if I remember well, it, it actually only impacted mostly of their Japan websites and, and code sort of development stuff. Paul, like you, you actually had some, some information to share about us, with us about it? Uh, yeah, so Mercari is a Japanese, um, well, I believe they're actually worldwide, but the particular impact here was uh, confined, as you said, to the Japanese market. Uh, but they have several tools uh, and they, they operate like a market for selling things inside of Japan where people can sell items and get payments. Uh, and the information disclosed appears to be like usernames, like actual uh, katakana names and addresses and payout information for a small, potentially small subset of users, I think a, a few tens of thousands that were uh, disclosed as part of this. The way this occurred was that, again, we have the CodeCov bash uploader and people use that to pivot outward from, from there, right? There was a, like, uh, information of source code disclosure and then they were able to use tokens that they got as part of the uh, uh, like CI process and use those tokens to obtain this other information. Like this is another example of what we're going to see an extremely, extremely long tail on, which is companies that have been compromised and in this case knew it quite quickly and responded reasonably well and uh, published a nice postmortem. Uh, they actually did it in, in the form of a PR, which is interesting. Uh, it was not on their blog or anything like that, but it, it is effectively a postmortem that explains how it happened. We're going to see this happening for who knows how long. Like the, the fact of the matter is that there's a bunch of companies that have been compromised in this fashion that will never know it and won't disclose a breach because they don't even realize they've been breached. Uh, and then that information will be used to you know, steal identities somewhere else or any number of things. The standard stuff you expect with purloined data being sold to data brokers. Actually, yeah, Mercari actually even works here as well. Like, uh, I know because I had to buy a collectible toy for my daughter. I didn't even know it was here in the U.S. until I started searching for this 1980s doll. And I was able to find a collectible item. I was happy that my information was not compromised, apparently. <laughs> I haven't gotten an email yet. I mean, I don't think we need to spend any more time on this one. As, as, as we all said, right, like, we're going to continue to see this one for uh, a long time. I'm... The one thing that I'm actually in, uh, that I think is interesting, it seems that GitHub has been telling most of like or reaching out to people that have, you know at least they think they've been compromised because I, I remember reading in last week on Twilio's and in this one that apparently they also were like dealing with GitHub uh, repositories and stuff. So I guess they are in a, in a pretty good position, you know, given that they host these repositories and potentially some of the data being accessible is there to actually start reaching out to more and more companies that might not have a mature instant response team to actually uh, do their own due diligence. And, you know, I, and I actually think that they take their customers seriously and actually do this job to go and proactively communicate to each of them and do these investigations because they have that data. It's, it's, it seems like it's a pretty good move from their part. Talking about data, last week we actually had a, an interesting conversation about a software that ended up with us talking a little bit about uh, open source telemetry. And, and Paul, I think you actually shared uh, the Audacity case and uh, discussion that actually was raised as to some of the interesting consequences of how do you bring open source telemetry to, to the open source world and, and, and the users. And, and I to summarize it, it sounds like, hey, they started to introduce some, some telemetry using companies like Google and JDEX, and they ended up getting an extremely amount of pushback from users. Uh, so w what do you guys think about it? It's, it kind of seems like, you know, it goes in the lines of what we were discussing last week. I absolutely think it does, right? Like we, 
Last week, we talked a little bit about how open source telemetry is a problem. And we said we'd talk about it more in the future. The future is now. In my mind, there's two kinds of open source telemetry, right? There's the, the, there's the application level, which is something like Audacity, right? Audacity writes a bunch of code, pulls it together into an application, and I want to run that application on my machine. And Audacity would like to know something about their users so that they can tailor feature requests or support things or understand when they can drop support for older operating systems, various things like that. And so Audacity goes and they build an opt-in telemetry system that uses Google and Yandex. And they get immense amounts of pushback around this. And that's a function of the fact that the open source community does not trust these companies. Like they don't want to store that data there. They don't believe that it's safe. But even more so, there is a smaller contingent. So like you have the larger contingent that feels that way. And you have a smaller contingent within that that feels that no open source application should ever collect information about how a user uses it ever because that is an invasion of privacy. And reconciling, like the, the former position is what, uh, what Audacity is attempting to correct for now. They've put up a big long discussion inside of GitHub discussions where they've explained what went wrong. And I believe they've actually done a fantastic job of communicating where they feel like they made mistakes and what they're going to do to try and resolve those mistakes in the future. The biggest of which is that they're going to move to a self-hosted model so that Google, Yandex, and companies like that don't have any visibility into this. Uh, and I think they're making their opt-in stuff more prominent. However, there still exists this latter piece of uh, set of people who don't believe that open source systems should collect telemetry of any kind. On the surface, that sounds very reasonable, right? Like it is, in fact, something of a violation of privacy, albeit a limited one, depending upon the way in which it's implemented, to know how people are utilizing your application. When an application sends back information about my laptop, it's telling someone something maybe I don't want to share. Uh, and so there's lots of like, things we could talk about around how you do privacy preserving stuff and things of that nature. At the very core of this is a belief that this is information that application developers should not want or need, and it doesn't matter. And that's where I actually have a problem with it, because commercial systems gather this information and use it to make product decisions. And those product decisions are, include things like when you, when you should drop to support, where you should focus your, your new feature development because you want to be able to expand features in the area that users are using most heavily. And that kind of feedback is incredibly valuable to a, to a team. It tells you so much. It allows you to drop technical debt maybe years before you realized you could. Or maybe it tells you that if you drop it now, you're really going to have a huge like PR disaster on your hands because actually you've, you thought only 3% of your users were doing this probably because it's you know five years old. But in reality, 70% of your users are still doing this. Not knowing that hurts open source applications. It's what makes commercial applications sometimes seem far more responsive in terms of like user requests and, and, and uh, driving like user experience more effectively. Open source applications are notorious for supposedly not caring about user experience. And I think that there's obviously more than one reason why that is, but some of it is that we just don't have evidence of how people actually use this stuff. I remember reading on it that some people were actually discussing about maybe maybe making it an option, which I actually think it will respect both privacy people and, and at the same time people that actually want to collaborate. I'm pretty sure a lot of, and as you say, like the, the vast majority of people are not against providing, you know, if it was an option, providing useful data. I mean, for God's sake, people that actually do contribute and they actually do testing, they provide a significant amount of data manually. They take the time to go provide crashes, report, generate issues. So there, I mean, effectively they are providing this data in a manual fashion. Obviously it's much more useful for a team to get this data automatically in a, you know, in a parsable format. And I completely agree with you. I think part of the reason why sometimes open source software falls behind from a UX perspective, it's because it has zero telemetry. It can honestly, it can only rely on comments that actually people manually push to them or, or their own experience. And I completely get, like, I'm a very privacy-oriented person. But at the same time, I understand that sometimes providing privacy-aware data of how I use the application that has absolutely no leakage of my personal details, of, like, what I do, what I don't do. In the case of Audacity, probably doesn't contain the audio that I'm recording, the audio that I'm editing, what I'm exactly doing with it, where is it going. But it might contain, hey, which, which features that I use the most with plugins, do I use the most? How big those files potentially are that might actually, you know, help me if it crashes? And I just feel that providing that data will not hurt my privacy, but at the same time, it will significantly help me getting a better open source product. And it feels as this goes back to uh, another sort of issue 
in the open source world that a lot of people say open source and they only think of the free part and they want to get everything for free at no cost without no consequences and provide absolutely nothing back to the community. And this includes sometimes telemetry back to the community. So the way that I see this is, hey, you, you, you get something for free that is open source that is meant to be shared and collaborated by everybody. If it was an opt-in and if it was well implemented and transparent about it, you know, like the community could actually benefit from you, quote unquote, paying back by providing some, you providing data that it would actually not inflict in your own personal privacy. What do you think the security advantages of having in-app telemetry are? You mentioned, for example, knowing how many um, how many users are still using an old version or, or using an old version on an old platform that maybe you don't want to any longer support. I'm just wondering, you know, what what are the security opportunities here for open source projects that do want to collect more telemetry? I think you you nail it right there, right? Like the perfect example. They, you have an old version. You can end of life uh, old versions quicker. You could uh, end of life features that potentially have vulnerabilities, and it will be extremely complicated, or it will cost too much to fix it. But if you actually know that that feature is rarely used. You could make a sacrifice and say, hey, you know, we're not longer going to support this plugin. The cost of fixing it is too high. And we know that, you know, 2% of our user basis doesn't need it. So we're going to make us, you know, we, we're not longer going to support this for the sake of the security of everybody else. Just just like you would do with any other. It's not, it's, it's not about, it's about the entire software development lifecycle, right? Like uh, private applications get this benefit. Uh, you could also potentially, I mean, Audacity might not be the case, but you could get into other applications that do have security implications that actually are there to provide security that you could actually get better telemetry and, and actually improve your product. Uh, it applies all over the place, right? And security, by for sure, it's, it's a potential, it, it, could, it could actually gain potential benefit out of it. Um, I think we, if we start thinking about it, we could think of like, you know, multiple cases where it actually would make sense. Now, with that said, I do think that it should be opt-in, right? Or opt-out or whatever the, the community in that uh, open source project decides to do it. At the end of the day, like this is open source. The people who actually provide code as project owners should make a decision. And if somebody else doesn't like it, hey, guess what? It's open source. You can fork it and make your own project and continue to move on if you really think you can continue to develop it. It's the beauty of it. It's, and it's also, you know, like the pain of it. It's, it's open source, so you're free not to accept the, what the majority decide and, and fork it and continue to move on. So, Rob, I think this gets into the, uh, the dichotomy I, I kind of hinted out earlier but didn't explicitly talk about, which is that end-user applications and libraries have very different models of what telemetry might look like. Um, and obviously, a, a library-level telemetry becomes a very big problem because like, if I pull 15 libraries into my open source application, does that mean that there's 15 different opt-in pieces of telemetry? Does that mean it's sending it to 15 different places? Like it, it, it turns out it's really, really challenging, uh, effectively impossible to be able to gain open source telemetry in that regard. Um, however, there's an interesting edge case for that. And that I think my cryptography project actually kind of gets it. PIP has telemetry, very limited telemetry, but it exists. PIP will report back by default, and, and this is opt-out telemetry, not opt-in telemetry, actually. Uh, it reports back by default certain information about your environment when you pip install something. Uh, it's the, you can go and look at the function. It's, it's, it's a giant function that lives inside of pip, but it tells things like what version of OpenSSL you're running, what your kernel is, what your distro is, and then in some cases, certain limited information about uh, other things that might be present. Like we're currently looking at whether or not it would make sense for us to check if a, Rice, uh, if a Rust compiler is present. Turns out that that might be challenging because of various performance things related to Rust up. Uh, but it, you can get some limited levels of telemetry there in that fashion. That Even that limited telemetry has been incredibly valuable. You've heard me, maybe not on this podcast, but the two of you have definitely heard me talk about pushing forward the ecosystem based on concepts of breakage budget. Breakage budget can only be used effectively if you understand what the breakage might be. Uh, if your breakage budget is, oh, I, I can break a little bit, but when I make this, uh, make this change, I have no idea of whether or not I'll vastly exceed it, then you really have no breakage budget. You, you can't afford to do anything. That information has been instrumental in allowing us to make pretty forward-looking aggressive choices in terms of like what versions of OpenSSL we support, 
when we turn off certain compiler flags uh, because we know that they're, or rather not when we turn off, when we turn them on because we know we can generally expect that the version of GCC or Clang will absolutely have this flag now. Like a good one that we couldn't use for a long time was F stack protector strong. I want that on by default. And the fact that I couldn't use it for years was problematic, but we were able to use it eventually because we were able to say, hey, we have now dropped underneath the 1% threshold. Uh, so like those sorts of things, we can make concrete security improvements based on that knowledge. I guess the other big one is that like in our case, we, we care about entropy and, and randomness. And there exist newer, fancier ways of getting randomness as of, I mean, it's pretty, pretty long ago now, right? But the kernel added uh, the get random syscall. For a long time, we had a bunch of code that has a bunch of fallbacks and did, we, we weren't sure what directions anyone was using. And that code does still exist. We haven't removed it because we do want to be compatible to old ones, but we are now very confident that almost everyone is using the path that we actually want them to use. And that's really nice to know that like, we can say, yes, we have evidence that tells us that we are actually improving the security posture of our consumers over time. Uh, and it is safe for us to make certain assumptions. That's really interesting. For my part, I had no idea that PIP was reporting quite so much telemetry back. That in itself, I think, will actually be a surprise for, for a lot of people. Or maybe it was just a blind spot. You can disable it. You can, but it goes to the opt-in statement, right? Opt-in is challenging in tools like that. Like, uh, there's no GUI. There's no place where you would make a selection like that. And so it becomes difficult. Like, you know, Apple has no problem. They, they, they launch... The first time you launch an application or what, the first time you boot Mac OS or iOS, right? You go through the setup phase and it says things like, hey, do you want to send anonymized feedback to developers when there's crashes and things like that? And you can choose. And when you make that choice, uh, like that's an opt-in choice, right? Because you obviously just yes and no are right there. And if you choose no, it'll, it will never ask you again and you're good to go. It is much, much harder to do that stuff in open source. Um, now, Audacity has the opportunity to do that. And in fact, in their original PR, they did have an opt-in. And it turned out that they still got a huge amount of pushback because, and this is the thing that I, maybe we haven't really kind of touched on a lot in this conversation, but like there exists a hardcore minority of people who are personally offended by the concept that anyone would ever try and collect data, whether or not it's opt-in. And they are a very loud minority. There exists this constant tension in open source right now between people who I would argue are, are frankly just uncivil uh, and maintainers. You can't just say you're going to ignore them, right? They still exist. They still complain. And so you can ignore them. You can continue down your path, but it's, it's a weight on your mind at all times. Part of the beauty of it, it's, well, if it's truly a minority, if it's truly being uncivil, if you really feel like it, fork it. And oh, if you cannot code, if you cannot do this yourself, well, these people do it for the love of it and they code what they like at the end of the day. They have a right to code whatever they feel like it. And if you don't like it, move on to another tool. This is the one part that bothers me about open source. Open source is about 0.01% developers and 99.999% users. Thankfully, 99% of those users are not bitchy users. But there is that 0.99% that they think that you owe them to do whatever they feel like it. And I've seen a lot of projects go bad or a lot of people stop doing it because they, I mean, they're, they're such good developers and they so believe so much in this open source that they ended up like getting depressed or stressed over things that what others not even request, almost demand, right? Like, and at some point it's, it's, it, it has nothing to do with telemetry. I think it has to do with the community itself and, and people. Um, but it, I mean, I, I see, you know, like from you probably, you get, I mean, you, you support a pretty big project. So I'm pretty sure you get a lot of very useful comments and a significant amount of like not very useful, highly critical, almost uh, complaints that are some to some more like bitching than not necessarily healthy criticism. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is that the vast majority of users don't ever say anything ever, right? Like they're just using your product. If they have a problem, they don't tell you anything about it. If it's working wonderfully, they don't tell you anything about it. Uh, you have a smaller minority of people who have problems who come and have and give you productive information about trying to make that better. You have an even smaller set of people who are coming and fixing problems. Uh, that's actually probably the smallest of them all. Uh, and then somewhere in that range, which varies based on 
basically whether or not you are have become a target on the internet for the ire of people is the set of complainers. There are ones who just legitimately think there's a problem that they want resolved, but don't understand the level of effort. And then there's the ones who are not operating in good faith. Uh, and unfortunately, the internet has a pretty decent number of people who do not operate in good faith. And like, yes, they, they come and they say things like they're going to fork your project, and then they never do. That's, that's fine. It's hard. Like some people are very good at ignoring that. I have gotten better at it over time, but like this is a civility thing. This is a like general health of society kind of thing. So we're obviously way off the topic in one sense. I, I don't have a solution to this problem other than begging people to think before you send an angry GitHub comment. Spend some time thinking about whether or not you would say that to someone's face. Spend some time thinking about what it might be like to be in that other person's shoes, because chances are they're trying to do the right thing. Chances are they're working, frankly, harder than you because you're coming to complain about a project and they're the ones running the project. It does, it's not to say that a maintainer is always right. That's clearly not the case. A maintainer has a lot of context you do not have, and so it behooves you to obtain as much context as you can, effectively make your request to like show people why you believe there's a problem and how you believe it should be resolved, and bring data. And I guess that'll, that'll neatly bring us back around to the original topic, which is if you can't bring data, then it's all just opinions. Anyways, uh, I think a, a bunch of projects now are moving to this model, right? Like Visual Studio Code, opt out. Uh, you literally have to like, you know, mark two things in order not to send telemetry. It is for Microsoft, but it's still an open source, you know, project. Um, I think Ubuntu also has some sort of telemetry that you have to like when you're installing. Uh, I'll be honest, I, I wouldn't mind if, as, and as you said, right, like it really depends on the case, like libraries and non UI code. But I, I've seen a lot of projects where now they're like, hey, when you're configurating, the, the first thing they tell you is, oh, this option disables telemetry and, and they're fine with it, right? Like, but they, they clearly tell you. Uh, and I knew about the PIP one uh, from like, I was first starting to set up Python and I was searching for something. And I remember like somebody said, oh, like, you know, this variable disables, disables telemetry, which I'll be honest, I actually disable it. I mean, I, I don't, sometimes I'm like, okay, unnecessary. Uh, but for other things, I, I do have the custom, like if I find an issue, I'll kind of report it. Most of the time, I'm, I'm not good enough of a developer in whatever language or whatever thing I'm using to actually produce, but I'll be honest and say, hey, here's, here's the issue. Uh, if I don't mind sending telemetry for some things, I wouldn't mind, like I'll just let them flow. Moving along, but still remaining in telemetry. You know, not every project actually has good health or good intention when it comes to telemetry. Some of them purposely want to uh, gather as much data as you can because it's their business model. Whether it's moral or not, whether, you know, regardless of that, it's truly their model. So uh, the next topic, and this is a new topic, no, no, no longer in follow-ups, it's um, WhatsApp. You know, it used to be a, an amazing app owned by some couple of Europeans, was bought by many billions not so long ago, but by Facebook. Uh, apparently under the promise that it will always remain separate, it will always remain, you know, private. But um, I'm a user, whether I like it or not, I still have family I'm slowly trying to remove. And most of my friends are like in the security field or privacy where I have convinced them to move to Signal or Messenger. But I still have, you know, most of my family, they don't, a lot of them don't have like a, a they have Android phones, so Messenger is not that simple and kind of very difficult to justify Signal. But about a couple of months ago, I think it was uh, late last year, uh, WhatsApp sent up uh, an update and they actually set up a message saying, hey, like moving forward, you know, we're going to start taking a little bit more information and gathering a little bit more information about you. Apparently, they're going to merge it, all in the excuse that they're going to make things better. Obviously, it had a tremendous kickback. And they delayed the, the conversation, but uh, a few weeks ago, they actually say that I think uh, uh, this week or next week, it's going to start slowly stop working. Uh, uh, so it's, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, they're not getting into, they're not interested in your actual text because, you know, end-to-end uh, -end encryption continues to work. But pretty much everything else, it's open to discussion, which which makes up for people that don't care, they're going to continue to use it. But uh, a lot of people are slowly going to start not being able to actually use WhatsApp. And I guess that's good for Signal. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Telegram, but 
think that's another app that actually inherited a lot of WhatsApp users. Um, telemetry, I guess, is can be for good intentions and not for so good intentions, or you know, or like, or it could actually very very well define your business model, as it is for Facebook, right? Like, it's all about getting your information or telemetry. I'm not sure I would call this one telemetry, just because it, it's it's metadata that's stored on their servers anyway. Like it's, it, it, I'm yeah. purposely being sarcastic. Yeah, fair here. enough. Uh, so like the thing that's most interesting to me about this is, I guess, two pieces. One, when uh, WhatsApp sent out this notification back in January, obviously this started this mess. We'll call it a mass exodus from the platform, although WhatsApp has a very, very large platform. So it would take a long time to have a, a truly large, like percentage-wise exodus from their platform. Like there was a bunch of bad press and then they came out and they said, oh, actually, this all, we made these changes back in 2016, which is an interesting position because if, if that's entirely true, then I don't understand why a notification didn't go out until five years later. Uh, but it sounds like, like their, their goal is they're going to share certain information about what businesses you may communicate with Facebook and its various you know, component pieces. When they, like, they got all this bad press and they ended up in this scenario where they're saying, oh, we pushed back the deadline to accept the new privacy policy, which, by the way, we claim is not actually new, but clearly is in some way new or else you wouldn't have to accept it. And then they were very clear. They said, I believe, quote, no one will have their accounts deleted or lose functionality of WhatsApp. But what they meant by that was that on May 15th, which is the deadline, they won't lose functionality, but they will progressively have functionality stripped from them as a punitive measure. Punitive is probably the, is not a word I should be using. It is perceived to be punitive. Uh, by users, that they're stripping this functionality. WhatsApp would presumably argue that the reason they have to do this is because otherwise they cannot provide the services uh, without the agreement to the new privacy policy. But of course, that makes you wonder why they could offer it before with the old privacy policy. Whether or not there's something malicious going on here, like the, the bottom line is that Facebook long ago lost the benefit of the doubt. Their actions in this have been repeatedly obfuscated and unclear. And because of that, there's no, no reason for any user to want to trust them. And that seems like a really foolish mistake for a company that WhatsApp builds a lot of their pitch based on the concepts of privacy. Uh, and it seems like there's a, now a very clear cultural clash with that and Facebook's internal goals. I agree with you. I think Facebook has, uh, sorry, uh, WhatsApp has like billions of users and on the quote unquote exodus, like it, it was like 10 million, 15 million. I mean, it was, it was not even 1% probably. Um, but still, you know, on a company like this, it's, it's worrisome enough. Like everything has a beginning, I assume. When, we're, when I was trying to convince uh, my college friends why to move, a lot of them actually brought up uh, tel Telegram, and my pitch to why not Telegram was, hey, and one reason that I like about Signal, it's not only that, quote unquote, in theory, that's crypto, right? And they actually do not collect almost any telemetry at all that I'm aware of, and they purposely, you know, very clearly say so, or any metadata. It's it's about being open, and, and this is one of the components why I think for this type of applications, being open source and, and being able to, if you really care about, like do your due diligence. And if you're really one of those, you know, critical privacy aware people do it. In the case of WhatsApp, you almost cannot do anything. I mean, you can do research, try to do reverse engineering and try to uh, come up and, 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 and do privacy aware research about this. But I think Facebook lost the game and, and the reputation a long time ago. Like they continue to... Uh, say A, do B, and they continue to make very obvious that what, what their business is and where their intentions are. Like Some people like it, some people do not like it. I personally don't like it. I try not to use their products. I do use Instagram, and I'm aware of the consequences and sacrifices that I personally make to do that. You know, I make my choice not to use them. It's just like I make my choice not to go and buy pizzas in Domino's. It ain't going to change that much their business. It's good for them. I don't think whether they're moral or immoral. That's my own personal opinion. But, you know, that's how they run their business. And a judge or the legal system says otherwise is not illegal. I might think it's moral and immoral, but it's completely irrelevant. But at the same time, to your point, the whole point of WhatsApp was this expectation of privacy. And, and it seems they're slowly but surely removing it. 
I guess, and you guys can correct me here, but I guess what they really want, they're like, okay, we're not going to get the text, but we really would like to know your network graph. We would really like to understand who do you talk to, how do you interact with it, which business you talk to, because they want to be able to sell you ad in many of the other platforms or their partners that actually buy ads from them. Like the best way to avoid this is not to use the product, right? Plain and simple. If you look at it in extremists, and consider that the only thing Facebook exists to do is to be the most advanced advertisement targeting platform in the world, then they would want access. If you, you know, if you start just with that, from that point of view, and that all technologies and things you bring in support of that are literally just to, um, just to enable it, then you end up in a situation where all of, all of the, you would be interested in far more just than the metadata and the network graph. You'd be interested in the actual intents and the contents of uh, every conversation. If uh, Paul and I are having a conversation about, you know, Android versus iPhone, for example, that's hugely valuable to both Apple as an advertiser and to whatever, you know, Samsung um, or any other Android vendor. We're having, you know, almost any conversation about flights, this, that, or the other, like the, the amount of data there from an advertiser's point of view, you know, especially, you know, if you're applying some NLP and other stuff to really understand the, the content and the, in, the intent of the conversation, it's extremely rich. Now, I'm not saying that the privacy policy allows anything like that. Ultimately, that data is there and it is extremely valuable. And, you know, the part that worries me more than anything, because I, I still use WhatsApp to, to converse with a bunch of people around the world for various reasons, is that, you know, this privacy stuff here is probably could very easily be a boil the frog. We start by just changing the policy a little bit and get the community used to that and then change it again and then change it again. And then at a certain point, at a certain point, people will stop caring. And it's really interesting because it makes me think about John Oliver did a great bit on privacy and it was on the Patriot Act. And the way and the amount of uh, visibility that the U.S. government had into people's com private communications and the very thin justifications that had to be given, particularly um, when traffic routed out of the U.S. and back in, they had the right to inspect and right to hold it for a certain amount of time. The interesting part about that and how it relates to WhatsApp is most people, they did a bunch of sort of Vox Pops, man on the street um, interviews. Most people didn't care. Right. I trust the government. I don't care, like I've got nothing to hide. Until the f question was phrased a very interesting way, which was, well, you do realize, and there's a bit coarse, you do realize that the, someone in the government can see all of your dick pics. And then instantly, people's reactions changed. Instantly, this was completely unreasonable. And this idea that there were sensitive things or things they considered personal, that they were conversing across messaging platforms, that just didn't factor into how they were generally considering invasions of privacy in this type. And I think WhatsApp's super interesting. I think people will essentially sleepwalk into various, allowing various elements of their privacy to be taken away, completely oblivious to, again, you know, extremist examples are useful, sending very personal, very, very sensitive material around. There are real world consequences to failures of privacy. If you imagine, you know, the, um, the Ashley Madison hack, some people, and passing no judgment, but some, some, some people killed themselves after that happened, right? So like our digital footprint is important and people can very easily sleepwalk into a situation where they can end up massively overexposed. So from the WhatsApp point of view, I've not read the new policy. policy. I'm just trying to get myself off the platform as quickly as I can. But I do worry that the general population has no idea what this can mean. And when you look at, you know, to your point, what the data that they're trying to pull, it's very clear that every single word you send across WhatsApp has value. It's not clear to me how far the policy goes into providing visibility into that. I'm sure certain things are enshrined um, as being forever private. But as you pointed out at the start, this is already a huge erosion from where WhatsApp started. And I don't see any indicators of what would what, what would stop it to continue being eroded? I mean, they can infer a lot of the data. As you were talking, I was thinking about, okay, if you have the graph, you know when and what time you're talking with a specific person. I mean, Facebook basically has 
whether ad direct technology and Google the same, right? Like I'm not I'm not trying to peek on Facebook, but I mean, their business is to like know where you click, where you go, where you visit. So if they know when you talk to somebody, they know that you click a link. Uh, now, thanks to Apple's new do not track, um, it, it makes it a little more difficult. But they even know how you interact, you know, with some of your applications because you know they're partners. You they include Facebook, so they are. They, they don't really need to know what you're saying to actually understand what topics you're talking about. And if they know the topics or if they know the links that you visited, you know, you, you had this conversation about Android-based or iPhone. You're either going to share a link with a friend, which Facebook probably is going to be selling ads in that website. So they're going to know that, you know, probably came from your IP, from your connection, and your friend also click it. So now I know that you both probably are talking about whether iPhone or Samsung or something related to those. So I can sell you, t- t- art, you know, ads and give you ads to both people. And probably I could also give ads to anybody that relatively you talk to in this, you know, within the same conversation or, you know, it's within the same graph network. And that conversation continues too. So I think when they bought this, they realized that if you know enough information, the content of the text can be mostly unfair. So it is extremely important if they had it. And I, I agree with you. I think this is sort of the boiling egg scenario. But at the same time, I wonder how how insignificant it has become given how much trackable points they have that the conversations or the topics of the conversations could also be inferred. And that is the part that, and this is not only Facebook, this is done by multiple vendors, that it, it worries me. And it worries me because about the real life consequences of what you said. I, I know and Mashley added some, you know, somebody was searching, found a friend, told his wife about it, and ended up getting divorced. It could literally have real-life consequences and very bad real-life consequences or something leaking or accidentally you start getting ads about something that you thought it was private and because you were having a private conversation and if you're using the same computer in your household as your partner, maybe, you know, it could have implications. Besides, you know, as being privacy paranoids, I think it has potential life consequences that I would like to avoid. And you also said that you're trying to move uh, out of the platform. I mean, same here. Uh, but at the same time, I won't lie. I actually find it useful. It was the one platform that allowed me to communicate with uh, mostly non-American friends because, I mean, most of the user base is non-American people here. Which I guess that's why also is very interesting to Facebook because I assume that most Americans are already in Facebook. So if you want to target the rest of the world, uh, it's just a pretty good network. I have a lot of people that say, I will never, ever use Facebook. And the next thing is like, text me what, text me in WhatsApp and let's see what we can do tonight, right? <laughs> You're like, okay. And by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those, uh, I laughably say so, like I do not want to use Facebook. I don't have Facebook, but I do have Instagram and WhatsApp. And I'm trying to get away from both of them. Uh, moving along, because I, I think this is, it's been an interesting topic, but we could potentially be talking about this one for a while because it's too heated and too controversial to some points. Something not so controversial, but I actually, I found it uh, very, very, very interesting. Uh, I saw it in, uh, in uh, Krebs on security and also in the Schneider's blog post uh, that was quoting uh, Krebs about a lot of malware and apparently uh, the recent um, piece of malware that actually affected uh, the pipeline. Some very interesting Russian keyword, uh, or not only Russian, but like some of the other languages in the, uh, they're a part of the ex-Soviet uh, Union. It will detect if you have a keyword with that uh, setup, and it would actually not infect you. And uh, they were raising the point as to like, hey, is this a good, good hack or good security mechanism to purposely include a Russian keyword so you're not going to get ransomware or malware. And apparently the reasons why it's because uh, Russia itself has a law that, you know, you're not going to be persecuted. Uh, so I, I just felt that it was very interesting. And I, hey, like, I'll, I'll say, I'll be honest, I thought about for one second to say, hey, maybe I would do want to add a Russian keyword to my computer just in case. I don't, I don't see a downside to doing that really right now. Um, yeah, no, it's very interesting. So there's a lot, obviously, a lot of malware comes appears to come from 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 Russia and and related related spaces. And it's it's been the case for a long time 
I don't know if it's policy or whatever, but um, Russian authorities are generally not going to take on a cybercrime investigation unless there's a company within their borders that's actually been affected by this thing. And we know from looking at even the most advanced malware in the world, stuff like Stuxnet a few years ago, Stuxnet wasn't detected at its target. Stuxnet got caught up and initially re- reported to Virus Total because it was often some 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 country very very far away from the initial target of Stuxnet, Stuxnet which most people agree was Iran. You know, this was the best best malware in the world, and it still propagated to places where the authors didn't want it to be. There's a few different checks that I think malware authors are putting in. It's been known for a long time that uh, a lot of malware will try and detect if it's on a research machine and exit. So. I would say that's your question. I don't think there is a reason to to not install a Cyrillic keyboard. It is the case that that's not going to protect you from everything, but the from a security or complexity point of view, adding a keyboard to your system is so minimal that uh, I don't think it's going to be. I don't. I don't see a downside to doing it. Equally, I'm not sure it. There's that much of a downside to dropping trying to drop a few of the other file system cues and other things that may well think that uh, your average piece of malware is in a in a, you know, a researcher's detonation chamber, at which point most of them just go inert because they don't want a researcher to be able to explore how it's working. So I should probably double click on that a little bit. Most malware is obfuscated. Elements of it are encrypted or otherwise offset and in ways that makes it very hard for you to analyze it cold. More often than not, you need to get it running somewhere, attach a debugger and some other things and see how it unpacks itself and see how it deobfuscates and starts running to really understand the mechanisms that it's using to both infect and to propagate. So a lot of these malwares try and avoid deploying in situations like that. So to me, this is just another, another kind of deployment protection that is built in. It wouldn't surprise me if we saw other attempts at geofencing and other things. But no, I don't, to answer your question, I don't see a, I don't see a downside in installing Cyrillic keyboard. That said, I'm sat here looking at two, two three computers, none of which have I actually gone and taken that step to do? So I guess, you know, Paul, Matthias, uh, you're both aware of this. I doubt that you disagree with, with my assessment. So let me ask you, well, firstly, do you disagree? And secondly, if you agree that it's a sensible thing to do, have either of you actually installed a Cyrillic keyboard on any of your machines? I have to admit I have not. I do agree it is a sensible thing to do. I actually, I do have a Pinion keyboard. Maybe maybe that'll help me in some capacity, but that's I, that's installed because I actually write Pinion on occasion. I probably should just go ahead and add the Cyrillic keyboard. I'm not sure why I haven't done it yet. No, I don't. And I, I, I thought about it, but I haven't done it. I probably won't do it. I agree with you. I, I think, you know, like if you actually want to go that route, like you could probably, you know, investigate a little bit farther which which specific signals would actually make it not to trigger and, and do so. Uh, that's actually not a bad idea at all. Uh, as to like even build a tool that automatically does that, like for Windows machines or even, you know, uh, Macs. But at the same time, and, and the, the authors of, you know, I think both blog posts were discussing like malware and ransomware that's not only come from Russia. So probably this is going to stop potentially some of it. Some of the Russian malware doesn't care. And if this gets mainstream enough, guess what? They're going to find another way to like do it because it's no longer be a uh, thing. Now, if you're a, a big organization, then to your point, like why not? <laughs> I actually don't think anything wrong with it because it doesn't really affect you. I mean, worst case scenario, by mistake, maybe you change your keyword and you start typing and you start typing in Cyrillic. Uh, it will be funny if it gets you into trouble if you work for a government agency and you have a Russian keyboard and somebody's trying to do some uh, some inside uh, detection or some inside a threat investigation. It will be funny uh, explaining yourself why you have a Russian keyboard uh, if you work in a U.S. government agency. But nevertheless, maybe it's part of your job. Completely changing subjects. I, I was reading news. I'm I'm following the uh, the Epic versus Apple case. I just think it's interesting. I'm not going to get into the whole politics of like who is right, who is wrong. But uh, Craig Federico was actually testifying. And, you know, they were asking him about uh, about why uh, iOS uh, has a very specific uh, app store model and, and a very specific security model when it comes to like allowing applications only from the app store. And he actually went into somewhat trashing the Mac and saying, hey, the Mac is full of malware. It has, it's not full, but it has a, an amount of malware that you know, he considered to be too high 
And he even said, some of my friends have had malware in their Macs. And we do feel that uh, the Mac is, he compared it to a car, saying that it, it could be used, you know, in, a, in the right way or in the wrong way. But, and it's, it's the model. But he also f- said, like, because iOS is a, an, is a much, much more bigger platform and, and it's used, uh, it's a portable device that you take everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. He sort of tried to stay like, this is why we have this security model when it comes to apps. Now, it's a very interesting statement, regardless of the, uh, I think I want to remove the, hey, the 15%, the 30% model, like whether that's part of the equation or not, like, I don't care. Like I, like I said, I have an opinion, but I don't think it's an opinion that I want to discuss in this podcast. I do want to discuss a true statement that is the fact that the iOS uh, app store security model is so strong and so tight and it has a, a, a review process. Is that actually benef- like really, truly beneficial for users? I mean, my opinion is that it is. I, I see the Android model where you, you can actually add another, uh, app, you know, another app store to it or siloed one, or you can siloed applications that are not signed. And a lot of the malware, a lot of the issues of those platforms come from those security models, right? I sometimes would like to be able to you know, install a terminal app in my iOS that actually allowed me to get, you know, access without having to root it or, or stuff like that. But but I think the, the sacrifices that I make make me feel comfortable that it's a device that I can give my parents, that I can give my daughter, and, and I would still feel secure that it, it can be limited so much in its use that it, it, would, it wouldn't probably affect it you know, with like normal things or viruses or malware that, that affect other platforms that do not have these such as a tight, tight security model. Whether there are other implications as to why the App Store exists in, in, in the way that it exists, I think the security reasoning, it's a very valid one that at some point, I wish the Mac actually was able to, and here is opting, opt out, but that I could say probably in the BIOS, say, hey, when I'm booting it up, say, hey, I want to only allow like the same type of like uh, security model for App Store that are all sandbox that, you know, that they, they can barely communicate or run into the old model, right? Where I say, hey, anything goes. And you could potentially argue that that could be the same model for iOS as well. Like you could uh, boot it up. But at least for the Mac, I think it would actually make it very interesting if we actually have a much more security model because I could bet you money that a lot of corporations would actually opt for that model. Right, and I have made the case that uh, when it comes to accessing bastions or production, I would actually feel very secure if you have a very strong, you know, bastion model and you give your users an iPad. I actually think it will be more secure than giving them a Windows machine or a Mac because it will be very limited. Very, I mean, yes, there's still exploit for iOS, and I think if it gets big enough, like you would eventually become a target. But like, if you compare. And when I'm having this discussion with security experts, I'm like, okay, how much is an iOS exploit worth and how much is a macOS exploit worth? And I'm like, okay, 10, 100 times more? Like, okay, I, I rest my case. Like the, the scale and, and, and the complexity to actually, you know, target one, it's way more complex. So I think there is a very, very, very valid use case as to like iOS being a strongly secured model. And, and again, potentially you can get the same sort of model with, uh, with Android uh, if you properly, you know, configure it, et cetera. But only talking about iOS, I think Craig Federico was not wrong. I think he was honestly right. Regardless of others' intentions, as I said before, it, it, there is a whole proposition that I think security people, we should explore a lot more. And I wish companies like Apple, Microsoft, and Google with Chrome OS uh, provided this very sandbox environment that probably I wouldn't use it on my personal computer, but I would strongly recommend it on a corporate environment because it would limit threats a lot more. So I, I think a lot of the sandbox environments you're talking about do exist. On your Mac right now, if you go to System Preferences, Security and Privacy, there's an option that says Allow Apps Downloaded From. And by default, it's set to App Store and Identify Developers. And you can right-click and you can run whatever binaries you want so you don't even have to have this, the, uh, oh, what is that? We'll call it these days. Uh, I forget what, the, they have a code signing it. Um, system now that, that they, they've got a different name for. At any rate, Gatekeeper? Gatekeeper is a tool that they use, but they, there's a there's a concept under, underlying this. Uh, oh, okay. uh, I can't remember the term. I apologize. At any rate, like that 
like is the default. Mac acts like a Mac, which allows you to communicate across things, different, like you can communicate using file system as shared resources and all sorts of other things, right? Like there's not a lot of boundary. Uh, the App Store. But the only thing that that requires is that you actually have spent 99 bucks, signed the application, and you could host it anywhere. Like, I mean, it's not, it's not really uh, limited where you can download it or how you can install it. The only thing it requires is that you... Correct, um, which is I mean, the, the standard Mac operating model. App Store yeah. is much more what you just described. You limit it to App Store. All App Store, like all Mac App Store apps are sandboxed. They all have limited file system access. They all have subset APIs that allow them to do things. They are not as sandboxed as iOS because like they are different platforms and there are different expectations of things being able to work. They are definitely sandboxed and they are sandboxed sufficiently that tools like one of the tools you're using right now could never work in that world, right? Audio Hijack could never operate in a Mac App Store only world. And so like you can build that right now on a Mac and in Chrome OS, of course, you have just Chrome and then you have the uh, their, their hypervisor that they use to allow for Linux apps to run, which is sandboxed very heavily by application. So like each one is its own VM. They have extensive sandboxing that exists even now for these the operating model. The reason why these things aren't more popular is that like it turns out it's hard to retrofit our existing tools into those models. Like in iOS and Android, people rewrote everything from scratch and they came up with new ideas and different ways of doing stuff. Uh, and some of those ideas work much better and some of them don't, right? Like iOS and Android to this day still have serious challenges with what multitasking actually is and how you share across and things like that. Like Apple has developed a bunch of stuff they call XPC for cross-process communication for doing uh, like sandbox sharing and, and secure like secure transfers. And like all that stuff's really interesting, yep. uh, but retrofitting it back to macOS is super, super challenging. So it's like, I get what, you, I get what you're saying. It's there, there's progress towards it, but like it's going to take a long time because the other side of this is that like for the last what we've had smartphones of the modern form for 14 years now. And in those 14 years, there's been a very rapid rate of change. Rapid enough that there's exists a set of very partisan, like very, I love my iPhone kind of people who absolutely don't want to learn face ID mechanics, right? Because the phone operates differently there. Uh, or they don't like the fact that every third release of iOS or Android, everything changes. You have to balance like pushing forward, making things better with the fact that like we still need to we can't leave people behind. And like at this point, these platforms encompass billions. If we choose to rapidly evolve them to change the way in which they operate and ask people to learn a new computing paradigm, the three of us might enjoy that. Part of what I love about computers is the part where I have to go and learn new things. And like it's exciting and new all the time. However, lots of people feel exactly the opposite. They want it not to change and they want to just be able to use it. And they find it incredibly frustrating that what they feel like is day one, they learn how to do something. And then they come back to it day three and it's all different and none of it works that way anymore. Getting to that nirvana of the future requires just like slow iteration and accepting the fact that perfect is the enemy of the good. Like we have to find ways to evolve those platforms and make them better without attempting to remake them from scratch. I I, I agree complete, completely with you. My, my, my overall point was more around that I, I just think that he was, that Craig Federici was honestly not bullshitting, that he was honestly making a real statement as to like, hey, like this is a more security model. It comes with sacrifices. I think a lot of people wouldn't, don't like about the App Store model, whether it's more secure, it's the, it's the, 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 the money part that I purposely want to stay away from this conversation. But yeah, I mean, the probably if the Mac Store model was like, hey, you just pay us like instead of $100, $500 to get in and you, you can host your apps and you don't have to pay anything. Probably a lot of more people wait eating to and say, yeah, I mean, whatever. It's just a distribution channel. It is what it is. I'll go through it. And if that was the only way to actually get app store, you know, apps uh, approved. I mean, the, the other thing that bothers people is also, but it, and I think this is one of the benefits and, and you have seen it even, even in an app store like model when Android was a lot more flexible allowing their apps and iOS was not. Uh, the amount of malware that the Android store had was a significant higher amount than the one the iOS had. Yes, it also meant that a lot of people were complaining about, hey, you know, I cannot publish my app. But for the end user, it could actually be potentially beneficial because even though there's valid cases where, 
you know, Apple might say no, and there's still, there's, from a security standpoint, there's nothing wrong. There's plenty of cases where, like, bad intention actor, you know, uh, actors actually do want to try to, like, bypass the, that model and, and put bad apps into the store. And I'm not saying any of these app stores do not have things that can bypass that model anyway, because they, they completely can't. But still, it's, it's, it's very, very, very interesting. Cool. Uh, so the, the last like point I wanted to make, I guess, around the iOS, macOS thing is that there needs to be a world where experimentation can happen so we can determine what those next generation computing paradigms actually are. And macOS, Windows, Linux, those areas are where that experimentation currently happens. Like Android, iOS, those are platforms where like the platform owner they can do a lot of experimentation and they're coming up with really cool and amazing things, but the like low level stuff, no one has access to. Can't do the, you can't compete at the same level with the platform owner. I think it's very important that there continues to be something like that because otherwise we're not going to discover that next thing. But I'm okay with the idea that some of my platforms are more limited and more uh, console-like because I am willing to trade that functionality for consistency and security when it's appropriate to do so. Maybe the other way of thinking about this is the Mac will remain to be the Mac and will remain to be that open world model if iOS continues to become more and more powerful. And you see now like uh, iPads having like an M1 chip, which basically is they effectively have the same horsepower than your most powerful Mac has. Those could become the corporate computers of the future, right? Like you can do Word, you can do Excel, you can connect to a terminal, you can browse the web. So you can effectively probably do like 99% of the job that most corporate employees actually need to do. You can do email, you can do all of the office suites, and you can even do a terminal, right? Like, and the moment you will get something like Visual Studio or Xcode or any like actual powerful tool, and you could like, uh, you know, cross compile uh, on a server, um, it, it would have, I mean, probably iOS will eventually be the platform that it will be the, the platform of choice for the corporate world. I, I, I actually do think that it has that potential future, uh, mostly because of the security benefits. Anyways, so it's time for Paul's rant. We're almost at the end of the episode and every every episode or so we have a poll rant section. Last week was Robert ranting, this week it's going to be me. I actually went to the supermarket last Saturday, right before we were actually recording, and I get to the supermarket, and we had this message, you know, like based on the recent CDC change, and the supermarket now said uh, it was a PCC supermarket. Instead of saying, you know, you might you might be masked to enter, now it said backs it literally backs or mask, and I was like, huh, interesting. And my, you know, my, the security person to me started saying, okay, so uh, do I need to show my you know, my two doses, because uh, technically it should be two doses plus two weeks or one dose plus two weeks, uh, depending on which vaccine you're getting. And then, you know, obviously forget about it. I, I am fully vaccinated. I'm still wearing a mask. I have personal reasons to do so. And even if I didn't have those personal reasons, I would probably still wear a mask nowadays for the foreseeable future. I think I immediately start thinking you know, me being the security guy and analyzing this as a system, I was like, this is completely broken. The authentication and authorization <laughs> of these uh, little entry door, it's very not well designed or completely based on like trusting people. Sadly, we have had a lot of people that are not, you know, not, not willing to either wear a mask or believe in science or you know, and, and here I'm getting pseudo-political or, or whatever they want to do, right? I am fine them having the beliefs, but when it comes to the overall society, I think we need to think about us as a society, not really as individuals, and, you know, there's some sacrifices that need to be made. Knowing that there is a lot of people that, for the entire pandemic, have not wanted to wear a mask, or they have continued to say that this is all fake, etc. I wonder like, okay, if you're going to have this system where you are required to be vaccinated or masked, how are you going to enforce it? And is it really going to be useful? And it, it triggered for me a very interesting dilemma that I have had, and I'm not only seen on this one, I'm just using this thing as an example. When people design software, a lot of the times 
uh, even security people, they they make so many assumptions as to what the user is going to be. And uh, I mean, and you could say, well, they're not threat modeling right, or they're not using attack trees right, but they just do security most of the time assuming that the user is going to be a good user, not necessarily a bad user. Uh, good security people actually don't do that. Most of the time they actually say, okay, this is what a good user is going to do and you want to limit it in this way because you want to enforce and protect their own security. And also this is what a bad user could do with like a, ba- a very valid feature. And, you know, this is could happen. And, and this is very common, right? Like you, a lot of the time you have highly secure apps but that ended up having very valid features that if a wrong intended person were using it, it collapsed the entire model. And and this is so sort of the same thing. And I'm like, okay, like I get society is not really far. You know, like the apple is, doesn't really f- uh, fall far from the tree. But at the same time, my sort of trust by verify uh, uh, runt, it was because this actually does impact me and my, you know, day-to-day and it sort of impacts everybody. And I'm like, oh, for God's sake, why don't we get this one right? Because if we actually do these things right, we're almost in the last mile or apparently so it seems that we're almost in the last mile for the last year, <laughs> but we are not getting to it. It was just my, my own personal rant about like uh, lack of like proper uh, security design when it comes to, in this case, check for, you know, the fact that you're not sick or that if you are sick, at least you're wearing a mask that it might protect your peers. And so it was, it was, it was very interesting. Um, and, and, and I just thought about the, the normal implication that this have on when we even design software, right? Like that we actually, uh, at first I was mad on like, uh, whatever, whoever makes the decision is wrong. But then I started, like I said before, I started thinking about it. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you know, this is, this is something that I, barely come and see even in my day-to-day job. No, I, I think I think that was a very reasonable rant. I think, you know, you, you, you touch on elements of faulty assumptions and also on a little bit probably towards this concept of security theater. Like most of the reasons when, like, security people have terrible problems out in the real world because we, we think about the exceptions to the rule. And then, you know, we'll go and talk to the security guard and they don't want to hear you because honestly, like, they've just, they've optimized a system that allows most people to flow through the store without either coughing on each other or starting a fight, and they're happy. But the rules that they wrote on the front of the store don't say, please don't do that. They say something other. So we read the rules. We are experts in finding gaps and edge cases to rules and then go and point out like how wrong they are. When often, you know, this is my personal experience, we're, we're a little bit myopic in that and possibly not necessarily recognizing that um, the, the written intent and what they're actually aiming to achieve in a lot of these places are slightly different. You know, we can have a separate rant about high security theater for airports and ball games and all that stuff at some other point. But um, I think that was a, a rant well made, Matthias. No, I, I, thanks. And, and I think to your point, I, I guess when I was talking to my wife, she was like, she actually did say something like that, right? Like, this is probably, you know, not in the security theory kind of words, but like leaning towards the same sort of examples that you provide, like airports, et cetera. But like, ah, this is just theater, um, probably to make people feel a little more happy about it. But I'm like, well, but in this case, like this theory could have very, you know, very bad potential implications. The, the, the part that did make me feel a little bit better. It was like, I know for a fact, because I, I go very early to the supermarket, so I talk to most of the people that actually work there, and they all continue to wear masks themselves, and they, I know they're all vaccinated. So it did make me feel a little bit better that at least, you know, the place is not really forcing anybody not to not wear a mask for the sake of security theater. But yeah, and I completely agree with you that we're very critical. I, I do the same things when I first moved to uh, the United States. I went to the to Whole Foods happened to be the supermarket that was two blocks away and they had all this fruit and all these products outside of the supermarket and and if I was like start immediately started looking around I saw no camera and I'm like but people can steal this stuff and I guess to some point it also relies on society like it really depends on the type of society that you live like where people most commonly don't steal you know these kind of things you can have products outside if you live in a society that has another type of reality where you have a lot more, uh, a much higher amount of like poor people or people living uh, under, you know, very bad circumstances that might end up having to steal to eat. Um, it, you ended up probably not having like products outside the supermarket and nobody, I mean, 
regardless whether you have a camera or not, you're just not going to have them at all. Uh, so it, it, I guess I'm like that type of critic and I always try to, you know, find like the issue as you rightly said it. It's, it sort of comes with my job and the way that I am. But in this one, I thought that it was just like, okay, this is not like the fruit because somebody stealing the fruit has very limited consequences, but like not doing this right could potentially mean like the pandemic could continue to exist for a long time. But, oh, well, like I said, that, that was sort of my rant and it was trying to be related to security because I was thinking about it from a security standpoint of view. Anyway, guys, um, again, uh, we, we recorded late this week because of Eurovision. It made me very happy that Italy won. Even though I have not watched it, I just purposely searched who won to make sure that I could uh, uh, talk to Rob about it. Have a nice week. I now got to go and make a good asado for my family. So I'm looking forward to eat that. And see you next week, guys. Absolutely. See you next week. <laughs>